Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here at Monaco 24. This week, we speak with Brazilian singer Marisa Monte. So I wanted to share a little bit of the, this feeling through the music and also offer to people some healing. I wanted to kind of provoke and promote a balance. Plus, an exploration of Sofia Coppola's films. The kind of high femininity of her films has been seen as a bit frivolous or all style, no substance in the past. And I think this is something that I've seen change. There's been a much more nuanced approach to female filmmakers and this understanding that just because something is lavish and over the top doesn't mean it can't also have incredible meaning to it. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the latest Foreign Desk Explainer. Following the release of Fusako Shijanobu, the co-founder of the Japanese Red Army, Andrew Muller explains the origins of the terrorist group. In 1995, Black Grape, the group formed by Sean Ryder after Happy Mondays, released their debut album, It's Great When You're Straight, Yeah. It was a fine record, though this is not the reason it is being invoked in a foreign desk explainer. It is serving as the introduction this week because of its cover, which was a lurid, warholified portrait of Ilyich Ramirez Sanchez, the Venezuelan terrorist who menaced the world in the 1970s under the nom de guerre Carlos the Jackal. The point here being that terrorism is no less subject to the tides of fashion than anything else. What seems gripping and important in one period seems curious, quaint, even vaguely kitsch in another. To further the analogy, the contrast is even more brutal if the terrorist in question enjoyed a period of dominance, much as nothing seems quite so strange or ridiculous a few decades down the track as a briefly inescapable one-hit wonder or a fleetingly popular dance craze. This past weekend, a 76-year-old woman walked out of a prison in Tokyo, her 20-year sentence complete. Her name is Fusako Shigenobu, and she was once globally feared. Much ink has been spilled, much airtime consumed, and many beards sagely stroked, contemplating such similarities as there might be between post-World War II Germany and Japan. But both did spawn, among the generation born during the war or just after it, a small but pestilential cohort who wanted to burn everything down all over again. In Germany, it was Andreas Bader and Ulrich Meinhof's Red Army faction. In Japan, it was the Japanese Red Army, founded by Fusako Shigenobu. While taking night classes in between shifts doing clerical work at a soy sauce concern, she fell in with the Japan Communist League, whose more radical wing, Japan's own Red Army faction, is best recalled for the chaotic hijacking of a JAL flight in 1970. The hijackers wanted to go to Cuba, but settled for North Korea when informed a Boeing 727 didn't carry that much fuel. Yeah. <laughs> 
After releasing some passengers in Fukuoka, they were diverted to South Korea, where hurried attempts were made to disguise Seoul's Gimpo Airport as North Korea, and while the hijackers didn't buy that, they did agree to swap the remaining passengers for Japan's Vice Minister of Transport, who'd volunteered himself as a hostage, and who was released after the aircraft reached Pyongyang. Several of the hijackers are believed to be there still, now into their sixth decade of what cannot be an altogether painless reflection on the follies of youth. Fusako Shigenobu seems to have believed, not unreasonably, that she could do better than that. She formally established the Japanese Red Army in 1971, based largely in Lebanon. The JRA would be far from the last foreign malcontents seeking to revel in revolutionary righteousness and or slake an appetite for violence by adopting the Palestinian cause, but they would eternally rank among the most dangerous and ruthless. The JRA's greatest infamy was the May 1972 massacre at Lod Airport in Israel. 26 people were killed, mostly Christian pilgrims from Puerto Rico, and dozens injured by three JRA members acting in cahoots with the Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine. Last year's hijack struggle of ours proved that the wave of world revolutionary war could only be guided by military actions. Fusako Shigenobu was not present, but is widely assumed to have been the mastermind of the attack, the 50th anniversary of which, by grim coincidence, was commemorated, indeed celebrated this week, with a small and wretched ceremony in Lebanon, attended by the only attacker who survived Lod, former JRA member Kozo Okamoto, who still lives in Beirut under the PFLP's protection. The JRA perpetrated several further high-profile raids during the 1970s, aeroplane hijackings and hostage-takings all over the world, including an audacious assault, again at Shigenobu's command, on the French embassy in The Hague in 1974. After a four-day standoff, they secured the release of one of their comrades from a French prison and a flight to Damascus. The JRA's last significant attack was the bombing of a USO club, an American military recreational facility, in Naples in 1988. An obtuse act of vengeance for American airstrikes on Libya in 1986, it killed four Italian civilians and one US Navy servicewoman. Fusako Shigenobu was arrested in Japan in 2000 after sneaking back into her home country on false documents disguised as a man. She announced the formal disbandment of the JRA from prison the following year and has since made statements suggesting an amount of regret for its crimes. She seems to have figured out that correcting injustice is more complicated than zealots prefer to believe. More than half a century since she ordered her first massacre, Palestine remains, to at least some extent, a prisoner of the self-indulgent passions of its foreign hard-left patrons, people far happier decrying the problem than contemplating solutions. The key lines from an interview Shigenobu gave to a Japanese newspaper in 2009 could be applied to any number of revolutionary groups, past and present. 
We were, she said, just university students. We thought we knew everything. We thought we were going to change the world. We didn't realize that, in fact, we were just causing trouble for everyone. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And this week I had the pleasure to speak with one of my idols, legendary Brazilian singer Marisa Monte. We spoke about her upcoming European tour. I just finished a series of concerts here in my city where I, I was born and where I live. This weekend, I did four concerts here and we just released the live, the last song of the album that I released last year in July. At that point, we were still in the middle of the pandemic crisis with lots of infections and everything. And it was a big challenge to record and release during that period. And I hold this song because I wanted to release live and only when I had the chance to be back on stage where I believed at that point that I was really going to be ready to sing a song called Feliz Alegre Forte, Happy, Joyful and Strong. And I feel much more happy joyful and strong now than, than one year ago. And I believe everybody because we are kind of returning to our lives, to our activities. We started the tour in January. We already went to United States. We did uh, 12 concerts there in March. Then we came back to Brazil and we've been traveling around and singing. And we've been meeting a lot of people that is going back to concerts for the first time now. People very joyful, very uh, moved by the feeling of kind of relief and happiness and of being back to cultural life. So I'm looking forward now to go to Europe, where I'm going in three weeks to start a European tour and to meet people and my audience in London as well. No, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting that you're talking, we're talking about joyfulness and happiness. I think your album, Portas, in a way, it is a very optimistic album, in a way. I don't know if that was your intention, but would you agree with that? And is your tour also has this kind of optimism in the air? I share all the, the, the feelings of painful and fear, 
fearful and all the feelings that everybody were, was into. We have also a lot of local problems in Brazil. So it's everybody in a very dark mood and a very uh, difficult times. And I didn't want to offer more of that because I really believe that even if we are in this moment of retraction in, I mean, conservative retraction in Brazil and cultural retraction as well. I really believe that we are always in a forward movement of evolution. Because if we notice in the longest period, like in 100 years, in an arch of time, a longer arch of time back in the past, we can notice a lot of difference in a lot of improvement in many aspects like human rights or for women. And so I wanted to share a little bit of the, this feeling through the music and also offer to people some healing. I wanted to kind of provoke and promote a balance, offering a little bit of hope and wellness through art and through music, which has been always being very helpful to me. You know, being in contact with feelings, with imagination, with creativity, has been always very helpful in all difficult moments in my life. And I wanted to share this certainty with my audience and to make them, they feel better in, in dark moments. <laughs> You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Also this week, I spoke to Adrienne LaFrance, executive editor of The Atlantic. We were founded 165 years ago in large part as a literary magazine, and it just feels so deeply part of our DNA to be focused on books. We, you know, our founders were the transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Longfellow. And so since the, the very beginning of The Atlantic, we've had this sort of deep affinity for literature and the world of books and poetry. And we've continued to cover this realm over recent years, but in a slightly less deliberate way. I mean, we've always made space for books coverage in, in the print magazine, but we had the opportunity to hire a small dedicated team who could really focus on books day to day as well. So it's just really exciting in terms of sort of a return to our core mission in some ways, but it's also, I think, at a really tumultuous moment globally with the pandemic and so much, certainly in the United States, so much of the, the sort of political chaos that we've endured to give people the space for literature, I think it's just essential. It's an essential part of being human. So it just, it feels right to do it as the Atlantic and it feels necessary in this moment. And as you said as well, it's part of the magazine's DNA as well. I mean, it, it's being host of, you know, many of the US best writers. So I think it's a really kind of good move. And that starts with the cover story uh, for the new issue. Tell us a bit more. And I have to say, I have the cover here from the print edition. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful from the color palette and, and of course the topic. But you, you would tell us a bit more about that. Thank you. Yeah, it's I, I really love this cover too. It's Caitlin Flanagan, one of our staff writers, wrote about Joan Didion, who recently died and is one of obviously one of America's great writers. Well, Caitlin Flanagan is one of America's great writers, and Joan Didion was one of the great writers of the 20th century and the 21st for that matter. And so Caitlin, what she's done is she wanted to understand 
sort of what gave Joan Didion her writerly power. And to do that, she had this really interesting idea. She's, Caitlin is from California. Didion famously is from California and wrote beautifully about California. And so Caitlin decided to go on a sort of tour <laughs> to sort of visit Joan Didion's, the houses where she either grew up in childhood or lived as an adult to try to sort of like understand firsthand what gave her her powers of observation. And and the result is just, I mean, it's beautifully written. It's a totally original approach. And I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, it's very much long form. It feels like, you know, she dedicated her time to the story, you know, to visit all of those mm -hmm. houses. So I, I think that that's brilliant that publications like The Atlantic, they're still doing that because that's how a nice story is created, right? Absolutely. I mean, great writing often takes time. And, and sometimes, I mean, speed is certainly a value and we move quickly at the Atlantic and some of our great writers can write very, very fast and that's wonderful. But there are some stories that require months or even years and we want to make plenty of time for those as well. And Adriana, I want to know more about your history at the Atlantic. Of course, you're now uh, the executive editor, but you know, you've been there for a few years and you had other other posts. So tell us a bit more. When did you start at the Atlantic? Sure. So I started here in 2014, so about eight years now, um, which is a long time. I previously was in a couple other editing roles, but also I was a staff writer for a time and then became the website editor and now executive editor. So I've, I've gotten the chance to do a number of different things here, which has been wonderful. And how is the, the difference between the digital and the print uh, kind of approach for the Atlantic? You know, I was in the U.S. recently. Sometimes I feel that it's quite different than here in Europe. For example, I know that in the U.S. you have this kind of the subscription model. It's completely different than here in Europe. I think subscriptions are more important there. But how is the Atlantic reader consuming the title these days? Yeah, I mean, we so we have like we, we have digital and print subscriptions and many of our readers choose to do both, which is wonderful. And I, the way I'd put it is the print magazine is a specific and and very important product to us and to our readers. And even those who choose to read in print also often are reading on their smartphones, like the way that you might. I certainly am reading on my phone all the time. And so in terms of how we think about the Atlantic and our journalism, we are really not you know, it's it's one team, it's one mission, but the print magazine is a specific and carefully created product. Well, I like that. And I want to highlight some of the other stories from the June issue. I think one that was quite interesting to me, even though we're not talking about, I'm from Brazil, but, you know, I can, we can relate a little bit to this, the evangelical movement uh, and how mm. politics poisoned the church. What an interesting story as well. So uh, a lot of new information that I didn't know. So, you know, of course, you have the expansion of the book section, but it's quite a newsy story in a way. Yeah, and that one by Tim Alberta, it's really beautifully done and deeply reported. He spent a lot of time going to different evangelical churches across the United States to understand how these spaces have become politicized. Previously, it really, you know, people would go to church and not expect to hear about politics. And now there is a population of people in the United States who are not only expect to hear about politics, but, but want to and are choosing their churches as a result. And we know that the evangelical movement is a really potent political force um, for Trumpism in particular. So it, it's a, a really important story, not just about the political future, but, uh, you know, helps the reader understand how the ground is shifting in the United States. And Adrian, what can you tell us about the uh, Atlantic editions? They will publish a series of books by Atlantic writers as well. I thought it was quite exciting. When uh, will it come out? 
That's great. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've just announced that we are creating our own imprint uh, in partnership with Zando, which is a, a publisher. Um, and so what this means is that Atlantic writers will have, will be releasing their work in book form as well. The first, uh, I believe we'll be able to share pre-order links this week even, but the first books will come out, you know, around the holiday time and early next year. Um, the ones that we've announced so far, we have um, Megan Garber, Sophie Gilbert, Lenica Cruz and Caitlin Tiffany, who writes the column uh, Famous People with another writer, Lizzie Plowjik. So they're all, I mean, just some of our really talented writers and it's going to be great fun to get to read them in book form as well. Adrian, I know you also have uh, great newsletters. You know, I'm a subscriber of some of them. And I was oh, wondering, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and I was wondering, is your reader, I mean, of course, it's your magazine and, and, and title overall is based in the United States, but there's quite a lot of international following, I, I would say, right? Or, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, do you see the approach from people from other, other countries as well? Yeah, we do have, and we have some folks even who are based in, in abroad. We have some editors and, and writers in London, and we do see that we have readers outside of the United States, certainly. I mean, we're, uh, we, we describe ourselves as a magazine of the American idea, but of course, we're also quite preoccupied with America's place and standing in the world, and, and, and we write about places that are not the United States and, and are not focused on them. So yeah, we have readers all over the place. And always a fun and irreverent segment. It's time, of course, for What We Learned with Andrew Muller. We learned this week of a definitive resolution to an Anglo-Australian rivalry almost as long and as hotly contested as the Ashes. This is the vicious sniping traded between hemispheres over the relative merits of each nation's preferred yeast extract spread. The British prefer Marmite, unless they don't. Indeed, in the British idiom of English, Marmite has become an adjective describing something one either adores or detests. Australians, on the other hand, suffer no such doubt about Vegemite, which everyone thinks, correctly, is great, which is why it is mentioned in a big pop hit and Marmite isn't. As if the jury was not in far enough, we learned that the jury had come in still further, if that's a thing juries can do, with the news that the City of Melbourne's council had decided to declare the smell of Vegemite wafting from the factory at one Vegemite Way, the actual address, a thing of significant cultural heritage. As we would submit is this. We also learned, though this is a pretty niche lesson, that there is no graceful means of segueing out of a bit on Vegemite into a bit on Russia's accelerating descent into lunacy, so we're just going for it. Ouch. We learned that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has been making hypothetical comparisons again. We learn, or perhaps glean, a satisfying word, glean, from that sound effect that there are those who recall a previous Lavrovian justification for his country's rampage in Ukraine when he demanded to know how the United Kingdom might react if the Republic of Ireland banned the English language. 
We learned that Lavrov is regrettably unbowed and indeed uncowed by the response to this, which noted that Lavrov was implicitly casting Russia as the imperialist aggressor, so there was that, and also suggested that with all due respect to an often unhappy history, the reaction of the UK now to such an edict by Ireland would probably be along the lines of okay, bit weird, but whatever, and would certainly fall well short of rocketing Dublin, bombing Limerick and besieging Galway. For we learned that Lavrov had shifted his focus and was now demanding to know what France would do if Belgium forbade the speaking of French. Vous savez, contrairement à nos collègues occidentaux, nous ne courons pas après les effets de manche. We don't know if that's the exact bit of the interview, but it's from the interview the exact bit is in, which is, frankly, as far as we can be bothered to research this nonsense. Can we now get a clip of people speaking French, along perhaps with some jaunty accordion music? We learned when we looked into it that as of this broadcast, France had still not responded officially to the scenario Lavrov outlined, so we presumed on this occasion to speak for France and accordingly have solicited from Monocle 24's Gallic Indifference desk chief the following impersonation of the reaction of France to Belgium hypothetically banning the speaking of French. Uh, in keeping with the responsibilities attendant upon the role, Monocle 24's Gallic Indifference desk chief is literally whoever can be bothered at a given moment. Anyway. Sticking with the theme of desperate chills for faded national grandeur, seeking to incite a certain spiteful nostalgia among the cohort of grouchy nostalgic xenophobes that constitutes their core voter base, we learned of the next front that the government of the United Kingdom wishes to open in its interminable and heart-stoppingly tedious culture war. So the government will publish a consultation, the essence of which will be, would people like to have the choice, if they're a market trader or Sainsbury's, to sell specifically in imperial measures. I don't think anyone's going to be compelled to do that if they don't want to. We thus learned from Marc Francois, inexplicable MP for Rayleigh and Wickford, of the latest benefit of Brexit. that not only will British beer be poured in pint glasses, just like it always has been and without the vaguest prospect that anybody was going to stop it, but that those pint glasses would once again be embossed with an image of the crown, just like anybody who really wanted to was always at perfect liberty to do, and congratulations at this point to listeners who have spotted the thinly veiled insinuation that Brexit has been nothing so much as an ongoing massacre of straw men. Probably some sort of combine harvester sound mixed with screaming will get us over the line here. We have learned, therefore, or really, if we're honest, surmised, that the UK is maybe six months away from a push to abolish decimal currency and restore farthings, florins, shillings and guineas. Or, if Boris Johnson is really floundering by then, groats. Groats! You can't get the staff. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. 
to find out how we could help you. Contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We head to Colombia now, where they just had the first round of their own presidential elections. There were a few surprises in there. Let's hear from our Bogotá correspondent, Anastasia Maloney. It was a massive surprise. Definitely the pollsters didn't predict it, and most people thought that Hernández would come third, and the conservative uh, candidate would come second, and it happened the complete opposite. So it was a night of surprises and um, Petro gained about 40% of the vote. Hernandez came in with about 28%. And it's going to be a really tough, closely fought race um, in the second round of voting in June. Is Hernandez, as far as it's possible to tell, actually serious? Or is this another one of those populist runs for office which ends in the equivalent of the, the dog catching the car? Um, I think for Hernandez, he himself uh, must be a bit surprised that he has got into the second round. Um, what I was hearing from a lot of people who voted for Hernandez is that they're not actually voting for him. They're not voting for um, his policies or his sort of right wing populism. Um, they're voting for him just to ensure that the leftist president uh, candidate Gustavo Petro doesn't get into power. So um, it doesn't mean that many people are actually supporting him. It's just a protest vote, a tactical vote to ensure that Petro doesn't get into power. Because still, for many Colombians, the idea that a leftist guerrilla could take power is simply too much and too radical. Um, Petro's policies for many people, economic policies, are far too progressive, far too radical. They fear the future of Colombia with him. Whereas Hernández... Um, they feel less fear. And I think that's that's the key to explain why he's done so well, particularly in the last couple of weeks, because at the start of the campaign, really, um, he was not um, considered a strong contender, but really rallied in the last couple of days. Where is that fear of Petro rooted, though? Is it in uh, his now reasonably distant past as a, a hard left uh, Marxist guerrilla, or, or is it to do with what he is now? Because he, he wasn't an especially alarming in any respect mayor of Bogota, was he? During the, when he was mayor of Bogota, most Bogotanos will remember an uh, administration that was pretty chaotic. Um, many people don't have a good memory of um, uh, Gustavo Petro when he was mayor, um, particularly for um, the wealthy who live in the north of Bogota. For people who lived in the south, the poorer people, they would have supported Petro. But um, as administrator, as a mayor, I think the general consensus is that he didn't do um, uh, a very good job. Uh, so people don't remember him well like that. And his policies are radical for some people. For example, he's been making huge ambitious promises like to provide free higher education at state universities. But there's always been this question as where is he going to get the money for all his ambitious uh, plans? Um, whereas Hernandez has kept the message really simple. He's very colloquial. Um, he's not politically correct, he's crass at times, but this message has been on key and simple the whole time. It is, I'm going to get rid of the corrupt politicians. Politicians are thieves, and with me, 
you will be sure that we can com combat corruption. And that really has uh, has turned it around for Hernandez, and he's kept it very simple. Is it possible to say where the demographic divide between the two candidates is? Are, are we witnessing any kind of clash of regions or, or clash of generations or city versus the country thing? Yeah, no, not really. And that's why it's going to be um, a very tough fight between the two candidates. They are very similar in many ways. Uh, they are both seen as anti-establishment. Um, Colombians yesterday definitely voted for change. They don't want any traditional political um, party. They don't want anyone connected with any uh, political party. Hernandez is independent. Um, that appeals to both uh, young voters and old voters across the region. And they are both anti-establishment. And that is across the country. People want another type of politician. So actually, Petro and um, Hernandez both appeal to young people. And Hernandez has been using TikTok uh, videos. He's on social media much more. And they have really resonated with, with young people. In fact, Hernandez has, hasn't been to the televised debates. He's kept a pretty much low profile. And and um, it hasn't hurt his um, chances uh, to gain the presidency. And he really is going to give Petro a tough battle in the next round of voting. And like many European cities, Paris is home to a network of unused and abandoned railway lines. One of which is the Petite Centure, a small ring railroad that circles the city core and was once used to carry cargo. Now a new project wants to connect these 32 kilometers of railway and turn them into walking routes with bars, cafes and cultural activities all around. Antoine Sander is the president of the Promeneurs de la Petite Ceinture Association and he spoke to Monaco's Carlotta Hebel. The Petite Ceinture is a very old railway line in Paris, so it circles around the city. It's a loop. I think the closest translation in English would be the small belt. And so it loops around Paris inside of the peripherique, so the circular highway. So it was built in the mid-19th century. And at the time, it was really quite the pinnacle of modernity. You have to think that this is a time where public transport was basically horse carriages. And so you have this modern train that is built primarily to link up all of the main railway networks because Paris does not have a central terminal, a bit like London. And so you have all of these terminals that weren't united. And so to transfer goods from one part of the country to the next, you would actually have to make them arrive inside of Paris and then transfer them via horse and take the train again at another terminal. And so the main purpose of the Petite Ceinture was to be able to transfer goods from one network to the other. But it was so modern and popular and useful that it was soon used as well for passenger transportation. And so in the 1900s, 39 million people used the Petite Ceinture. However, with the metro arriving at the beginning of the 20th century, passenger traffic just went down until 1934 when it was stopped altogether. And then from 1934 to about the 1990s, the Petite Ceinture was exclusively used for freight transportation. And then in the 1990s, with the closure of all of Paris's main industrial sites within the city, it was left in disuse. And so for the past, let's say, 10, 15 years, 
the city has been pushing to transform parts of the Petite Ceinture into a walkway. And so our role is really to advocate for more because right now, so the Petite Ceinture, I should have said, is 32 kilometers long, so about 20 miles. So it's really quite a large piece of infrastructure. And so what the city has done is it has opened bits and pieces, but right now it remains quite fragmented. And so what we're trying to advocate for is to unite all of these fragments to recreate a green walkway that's the full 32 kilometers. When freight traffic stopped, what was quite surprising, maybe not so surprising, but that kind of spontaneous vegetation took over the entire railway line. And so what you have today is that the Petite Ceinture with the two main woods is Paris's largest biodiversity reserve. And so, you know, in a time of climate change where cities everywhere are looking to find spaces where you can breathe, I mean, we've had heat waves in Paris for the past three or four years, the city can become quickly suffocating. So it's really important, I think, to preserve these spaces of wilderness, or let's say, I think wilderness in the city is never quite appropriate, but at least wilder than the rest of the city, and to preserve them and to grant access to people, because we need to kind of have these spaces where we can take a breath and just unwind and forget for a split second that we're inside the city. And that's what's so amazing about the Petite Ceinture is that its terrain is quite diverse. And so you will have from one section to the next, you will have a totally different type of vegetation, different type of animals as well that live on the infrastructure. And so, yeah, we really have to preserve these spaces and try to build upon what nature has done on its own. Well, speaking of spaces, it's important to mention as well that this is not just about connecting those green walkways that people can take, but also to bring some life to the Petite Centure with urban farms and gardens, some restaurants and cafes. And I believe a few of these are already open. Yeah, so that's also a development of the past 15 years. So what you have is that along the Petite Centure, you have a, a series of infrastructure. So you mentioned train stations, but we also have called drops and these kinds of railway linked infrastructure. And slowly what's happening is that the city and the SNCF, which is the main train company in France, slowly they're trying to bring life back to the surroundings and to all of these buildings. And so currently I think you have over 10 spaces, train stations, you mentioned urban farms, etc., that have opened and that dot the entire Petite Ceinture. So really the walkway would be uniting all of these spaces because right now what you have as well is that all of these spaces are known to Parisians. They will know about the Recyclerie, the Hazard Ludique, some of these spaces, but they sometimes lack the understanding that all of these spaces are connected and united by the same infrastructure. And so if you imagine a walkway all around, I think it would really create a formidable space that would be both a park, a very large one too, it would be Paris's biggest park, but also a park that is very much alive and bustling with activity. Now, some parts of the Petit Centre are already opened, as you've just been describing. The aim would be to connect it fully. But for the bits that are already open and the public is able to walk through, do you find like people enjoy to walk in these walkways? Do people know about it? Is it a project that still needs to get a bit of a publicity out there or is it known to Parisians? It's really changed in the past five or six years with all of these new sections opening. So I would say that when we started working on the Petite Ceinture, it remained quite underground and only known to people who were quite into urban exploration, etc. That has definitely changed because now with the 10 kilometers, so basically each of the 
exterior arrondissement or districts has its own little linear park. And thus, I think that today it's becoming much more known. However, what isn't known is the unity of the line itself. So people will know, oh, I know this section of the Petite Ceinture, but what they often don't know is that it goes all around Paris. So they will think that it's only in their district that this line comes through. And because it's fragmented and they're blocked at either end of the walkway, it's hard for people to figure out that all of this is connected. So typically, this is something that we're trying to showcase on our website and through events. We organize quite a lot of urban walks and things like this to really show people the potential and the unity of the infrastructure, not just the fact that in your neighborhood, you have a small linear park that is quite nice. And I think that what we've seen, at least on the ground, is that it was tremendously popular. All of these sections are popular with residents and the local communities. And Antoine, just before I let you go, if I would be in Paris this coming weekend and wanted to walk in one of these already open sections, where would uh, you recommend we'd go and what might we find? So all of these sections will be very different. And so if you're walking in the chic kind of west of Paris, you will find something that is very, you know, you'd be surrounded by the kind of the traditional Haussmann buildings, etc. Whereas if you walk in the northeast of town, you will come across a jazz bar that, you know, is all covered in graffiti and has this more kind of grunge aspect to it. So I think it's really a matter of personal preferences. What I would suggest is to start close to where you are and also to try not just to do one of these sections, but really to try to either connect a few of them, so to walk along the Petit Centre and to follow it, or to try different parts of town to kind of compare and contrast. For my part, I think one of the sections that I really prefer is that in the south of the city, the Petit Centre du 14e. So that's in the really in the south because it's I think it's one of the best preserved walkways. But the best way, if you're going next week to Paris next weekend, I'd say try to set aside a couple of hours, look at our map and see where you have more sections open and try to link up at least a couple of them to kind of see the diversity of the space. You're listening to The Curator. Sofia Coppola has been applauded as a filmmaker ever since The Virgin Suicides in 1999. In the two decades since, her films have touched on everything, from an 18th century queen on the eve of the French Revolution to a group of thieves notorious for stealing the property of Paris Hilton. We take a deep dive into her work with critic Hannah Strong, the author of the new book, Sophia Coppola, Forever Young. So Sophia is the only daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. of course the iconic filmmaker behind Apocalypse Now and The Godfather and all manner of wonderful films. He doesn't really need an introduction. He doesn't need an introduction. <laughs> He's got big enough feet. But they exactly. are big footsteps to fill. But and they I think really are. We'll probably get into that, that, how and whether she's tried to or not tried to, or whether people have accused her of it or not, or all the rest of it. But she sits in a kind of comfortable upper echelon of, of Hollywood you know, blue blood, I suppose. Yes, it? very much so, yeah. yeah. I think that's probably... Something which has been obviously a massive help for her, but kind of a hindrance, because when your father is one of the best filmmakers of all time, you know, how can you possibly live up to that? So Sophia kind of, you know, she was born in the 70s and uh, came of age throughout the 80s and 90s and did a little bit of everything. As I get into in the book, she was a model, she was a fashion designer, she was an actress, as anyone who has seen The Godfather Part 3 will remember, she... (laughs) did act, you know, kind of mileage may vary. I felt that you might put italics on one of the words in that sentence. (laughs) I'm a big fan of her performance in that film, but I think that it's one of those things that 
history has been a lot kinder to it mm. than the contemporary reactions were. Yeah. And she was very scarred by that. So I think we do have, in a way, the kind of critical mauling she got for her acting uh, to thank for this career she went on to have as a filmmaker. So after that, she kind of uh, went away and did photography and did various things. And then eventually made her first film, The Virgin Suicides, and that premiered at Cannes, got a very positive response. And the kind of, as they say, the rest is history. She's gone on to have this very uh, illustrious career as an independent filmmaker. I mentioned your touching introduction to the book and you bring readers along beautifully because obviously Sofia Coppola and her movies have meant something very personal to you. If you don't mind telling us, I mean, it's obviously in the book, but I mean, her lens, her female lens and what she meant to you as a young woman is obviously very important and presumably the genesis for the book in some way. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, um, For me, growing up, as I did in um, the kind of wilds of uh, Yorkshire, very different environment from the places that she puts in her films and very different kind of couldn't be more abstract from the uh, rarefied yeah. Coppola world. But for me, I was such a unhappy teenager I had a lot of problems with depression and anxiety and I spent a lot of time off school and one of the things I did during that time was watch a lot of films and obviously that's had a massive impact generally on my life you know I became a film critic so uh, you know it's <laughs> that worked of, out okay it worked out great yeah. yeah my education I'm holding this book it's pretty heavy I think it worked out okay Hannah. it did my education wasn't just in the classroom it was very much in my living room in the bedroom watching yeah. films yeah. so there were lots of filmmakers during that time who I discovered and loved and many kind of the um colleagues of her father mm. so you know it's funny that Sophia is the one who came along and I watched The Virgin Suicides and I watched Lost in Translation and they were some of the first films that really struck me as understanding what I was going through or feeling like my experiences were kind of being reflected back to me mm. and that was an a kind of a revelation for me I talk about this in the book but the kind of the bigger stuff, the the actors and the kind of settings are, are incredibly different. But the feelings, the emotions, the, the kind of larger themes that these films get to, I think, just really resonated with me. Yeah. And that was so novel to a teenager. So is that the moment, you know, that, that where it sort of clicked, where you talked, you talked about sort of people of her father's generation of filmmakers, these canonical, you know, probably male filmmakers frankly right but seeing something presented by also another young woman getting the female experience and and as you say despite being thousands of miles apart you know getting under your skin to a certain extent yeah absolutely yeah and I think that and this isn't just my experience of being a teenage girl I think it's a universal thing for all teenagers is that you feel very lonely as a teenager and you feel like no one gets you and it's kind of a joke you know teenagers think they're massively misunderstood so to be able to kind of make that connection and feel like someone understands even in a kind of abstract way was so valuable to me. Yeah. And I think I was kind of amazed to discover that, you know, as I grew up and kind of went off into the world, these films were having the same impact on younger people. And that to me is kind of a testament to her talent that, you know, these films really have endured and they're still selling out screenings the, the world over. So I think it's thrilling to me that I had this opportunity to kind yeah. of take such a deep dive into someone who's clearly had such a massive impact on my life. So there's the fact that she's a wonderful female filmmaker. What about the aesthetic of her films? Do they share, and we should say, we should tell our listeners that you've arranged the book in interesting chapters. All the films are obviously present and correct and things, but you've got celebrity and excess. You've got sort of different category, category chapters as well. 
amongst all these chapters and across all the movies, is there a Sofia Coppola kind of, is there an aesthetic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, shared aesthetic, there, I mean. definitely, I think. And I think this is part of the reason she's been kind of dismissed um, among certain circles and certain types of uh, film critics. I think that the kind of high femininity of her films and this kind of very maximalist aesthetic that she tends to gravitate towards has been kind of seen as a bit frivolous or, you know, kind of all style, no substance in the past. And I think that... That's I something that. I hate that, that of critics of that. That's something that always really kind of me. got me because yeah. I think, you know, and I think this is something that I've seen change in the kind of time of me starting to watch her films to now, is that there's been a much more nuanced approach to female filmmakers and this understanding that just because something is lavish and over the top doesn't mean it can't also have incredible meaning to it. So, you know, there's that kind of incredible production design and costume design which all of her movies kind of have these incredibly intricate details and Mm. she's a filmmaker who is very meticulous and if you speak to any of her collaborators the thing they say is that she knows what she wants but she's incredibly open to collaboration and she gets people that are the best people for that job and that I think is very interesting compared to some of the filmmakers that I've read about or interviewed who have a vision and they see everyone they work with as bringing their vision you know, to life, yeah. to the ticket. And Sophia is very much more like, oh, here's my idea, but I'd like to hear what you think. And I'd like to kind of make it feel like a collaborative effort, which is, as an aside, what I feel film should be. I think Sophia and Stanley <laughs> Kubrick would have got on, but not have been great work buddies. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. And and someone like, there's a wonderful quote from Orson Welles, which I always think of about directing. And he said that a director is a field marshal and has to shepherd everyone into, mm-hmm. into battle, so to speak. And I think that... Listening to interviews with uh, Sophia's collaborators, the thing they always say is that she doesn't kind of order everyone around. Mm -hmm. She's very much kind of uh, a softly, softly director. And that's not to say she doesn't know what she's doing, but I think she does bring this kind of uh, quiet confidence to things. And, you know, you could say, well, of course she does. She's, you know, (laughs) look at who her family are. But that that shows real, that is confidence. It's tough not to film set is a kind of hermetically sealed environment where you are trying to make a creative thing out of lots of different ingredients right you're trying to make a very complicated cake and uh oh this is this is going to be the worst metaphor it's going to run out of steam (laughs) but you're trying to bake a very complicated cake and and yeah that softly softly approach takes quite a lot of guts weirdly i think and i I wonder what you thought of for criticisms of her you know sort of saying that that all style, no substance kind of thing. It's like style is substance. That's what it's, it's a the film. It's a visual thing. It's meant exactly. to look in a certain way. It takes quite a lot of work to get make it look that way. And the way it looks means something. It's not yeah. a novel. It's a, it's a, it's a film. Right? Exactly, yeah. And I think that the visual kind of appeal of her films has contributed to their longevity. You yeah. know, something like The Virgin Suicides or Marie Antoinette has, I think, found new audiences primarily because the images are so iconic and you go online you go on any kind of like blogging site it the things you will find are kind of those images of all the beautiful cakes or the girls kind of on the front lawn and that's the thing with the book is that we wanted to kind of highlight the fact that she is a very visual filmmaker she's not and she has said this by her own admission she's not a script you know a a dialogue writer Mm. she doesn't like writing dialogue but she's a (laughs) writer i mean we should also we should also point out that she's a writer director and mostly a producer of her own movies yeah absolutely i mean she's she does a lot she definitely does people to say she's sort of a laggard in some ways bananas (laughs) right especially because 
it's my understanding and it is actually quite hard to find financial information for her films but I think that's because they're independent a lot of them you know her, mm. her father's production company produces them but I it's my understanding that Sophia's films are primarily funded through her kind of own fundraising with the exception of Marantinet which was her kind of foray into the studio system and part of that was funded by her fashion line which she did in the 90s did very well for itself and I think that you know it is kind of dismissive to say that she's only got somewhere because of who her father is when you look at the amount of kind of things she's doing and then you look at her kind of her commercial work and you look at her tv work and there's just so many things and the that music she's promos kind of, and stuff which is so wonderful the music videos yeah. you know i it blew my mind to realize that she was behind the white stripes i just don't know what to do yeah. with myself video because obviously that was on you know mtv all the time when i was a teenager and i never made that connection so i totally understand the kind of i think it's more important to me than ever that we talk about uh, nepotism within the film industry and kind of make sure that we're understanding why people get the opportunities they do and, you know, kind of keeping one eye on that. But I think Sophia is someone that proves that you have to have a kind of artistic vision. You have to have the talent to back it up. And to me, her body of work has really wrestled with her own feelings of privilege and her own kind of struggle with kind of defining herself as a young woman against this incredibly overbearing like family name and finally the curator Tara Bernard has become known for creating outstanding hospitality spaces across the globe with each project imbued with a strong sense of place and individuality the steamed interior designer explains her approach every single hotel is approached individually so there is in a sense a new story for each one And I think even though it's the more practical, we have certain design philosophies or go-tos that over the last decades have certainly matured, but they would always start with black and white, maybe less sexy floor plans so that we know how we're going to move around the space and we've dedicated each zone. And from there, we will also simultaneously work on what we call creating a DNA, which is a personality from that project, which might be drawing on local artisans, things that have inspired us nearby, but also it could be people. It could be a picture of a woman in a linen dress that just makes us think of a project in Mexico. And we take all those inspirations and they slowly together help us form a story. And from that story, it will lead us to the choice of finishes, the floorings, the furniture, so that everything has a sense of coming from somewhere. Not themed, but there is a personality behind every project. So obviously each one, I guess, is distinct in its own right, but are there maybe rules or an approach that's consistent across, you know, your work each time? Are you speaking to locals? Are you digging into, you know, history books? How do you even begin to, I guess, develop the DNA? You mean for the look and feel. So yes, there's the deliverables. We'll have everyone switching off this podcast because there's very practical logistic deliverables, which layouts have to be signed off before you can go into the elevations. And those all are run simultaneously to the look and the feel. A project in Mexico on the beach is obviously going to differ massively from what we might be building in downtown Osaka. So therefore, there is a real need to know the area. We often refer to what we do as indigenous, but we also like to keep things timeless. I believe very much with any hotel, there is such a magic to a hotel, such a sense of ceremony, and it's all tied into the operations. But for us, it's really important to draw on what's local, to create something that doesn't feel inappropriate to where it sits, but still feels seductive. And key to that 
is making sure you don't end up doing something that's themed. And this is what I want to talk about. How do you steer clear of that? How do you tread that fine line between reflecting a place's character without maybe turning that place into a caricature, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a really good question because, and especially I think today, we feel there is very true to our work, but I also believe what people want very much is to feel a sense that that place belongs as to a generic hotel brand that you would know from Hong Kong to Istanbul. You want to feel that it fits in with your surroundings. And I suppose there's a sense of approaching it a little like one's home, that you would draw on local crafts. You would use a floor that maybe the stone is local, but it doesn't mean that everything else has to be. And if I was creating my own home, I might throw in a mid-century chair that has nothing to do with the Mexican beach, but the fabric on the cushion might be from the local crafts. And I think that makes all the difference because what you're doing is it's sort of salt and peppering with character pieces, finishes that might not necessarily have to be there. And in a sense, I don't have rules, so you're breaking rules. Is there a particular project that stands out for you in terms of, you know, feeling timeless that you've maybe gone back and revisited 10 years later and it, and it still hits? And, and maybe is there something from one of those projects that, you know, you think is worth celebrating or, or talking about or something other designers can learn from? I would almost say invite me back in 10 years when we're 30 and let me see what I feel about some of these projects. Interestingly enough, I was having a drink with someone yesterday in a hotel in London, which was finished over 10 years ago the Harry Hotel in London. There will always be when places are that busy. I want to go back and tweak some fabrics or upholster things, but on the whole, it still works. And that's really reassuring to know. It is right for the clientele and for the attitude, if you like, of that hotel group. And I really hope that some of the choices, as if you were doing a home, no one really builds a home to necessarily have to upgrade it or change it. So there's certain practical decisions that have to be made with hotels in terms of which fabrics and things like rub tests and fire and etc. So once you get through those, the feeling of what the materials and how you situate it bring, we hope inevitably do pass that ultimate test of standing the test of time. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Dewars and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best shows here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>